Shopify helps you sell at every stage of your business. Like that, let's put it online and see what happens stage. And the site is live. That we opened a store and need a fast checkout stage. Thanks. You're all set. That count it up and ship it around the globe stage. This one's going to Thailand. And that, wait, did we just hit a million orders stage? Whatever your stage, businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for your $1 a month trial at shopify.com slash listen. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. Well, I got to interact with a lot of friends and family members over the Christmas holiday. Even a lot of people that say they don't make a point of listening to this show regularly. But person after person said that they make a point whenever they hear our guest this hour is going to be on. That's a show they make sure to hear to and to not miss. Why? Because it's different than Anything else that's on talk radio, anything else that's on the radio, period. Whereas uh, so much of talk radio is dominated by uh, left wingers bickering with right wingers and vice versa. This is an hour where we really get to delve into the mysteries of the universe. It's an hour where we get to look up and wonder and maybe even get some of our questions answered. It is an hour where we get to have some cosmic conversations with none other than Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky. Steve, uh, it is great to have you back on the program. Thanks for joining me. I hope you had a great Christmas. Absolutely, Frank. I'm wishing everybody the best of the Christmas season. How about Boxing Day for those that celebrate that in different parts of the world, St. Stephen's Day and Kwanzaa, and above all, a Happy New Year. Yes, Hope you and your family and little Carmine had the best of Christmas that you could possibly Absolutely. Have. We, uh, we absolutely had a blast. No snow in Arizona, I'm guessing, Steve. It was not a white Christmas for you. Well, not here in Phoenix, but if you drive two hours to Flagstaff, you have that white powder sticking to the ground, and I'm sure there's a lot of people up there right now wanting that beautiful stuff because in six months it'll be about 126 degrees (laughs) (laughs) i love it all right Uh, by the way if people want to call in during this hour and ask questions they can do so 800-848-9222 people are already starting to queue up but we have uh, four open lines 800-848-9222 a lot that i want to get into this hour um, sure. there's been a lot of concern, not only with respect to space, but with respect to the uh, national security in general and the economy about uh, about China. There was a fascinating story about this uh, Chinese space plane and a lot of folks wondering what the latest is with the with this space plane. Give us the latest. Where are we with this Chinese space plane? Well, Frank, it's interesting. The X-37B is really the grandfather of what we're talking about, and it hopefully will be launched sometime toward the end of this year, which is days away. What is that? It's a military space plane, kind of a miniature version of the space shuttle. Dimensionally, it'd be like the size of a small SUV and maybe a wingspan of 14 feet. But we find out the Chinese, very aggressive that you and I talk about in the space program, have deployed another object very reminiscent in shape, size, and probably function called Shenlong, which in Chinese it means the divine dragon. And how about in the accordance of the new Chinese New Year, what, the year of the dragon? What is this? It's a space plane that's doing some kind of, I don't want to use the word freely espionage, but it's doing some kind of research. But now it moves back, if you take a look at the needle, maybe over to the right side, where it might be doing some surveillance and theoretically espionage. Amateur radio listeners around the world, and they say, I don't know how they just refer to them as amateurs. I mean, they have this sophisticated equipment. They noticed that there was some sort of objects being deployed 
meaning they're sending little signals out, different signals, different frequencies, right out of that Shenlong. So the people in the space industry are speculating, well, maybe these are some micro-satellites, you know, some kind of satellites, who knows? I mean, going into the deep dark side of espionage, maybe they're little objects that can attach to our spacecraft or other spacecraft doing surveillance, maybe doing other nefarious things. But it's interesting because our X-37 has been doing some similar kind of research, probably about, what, 900 or more days, right? This particular American spacecraft has been up there. Very, very secret, as we talked about last time. But the Chinese, as they continue to copy, I mean, if you look at some of the military aircraft, take the F-22, the fighter itself. Even today, by today's standards, we're looking at even, you know, sixth-generation fighters. They have copies almost identical to the shape, size, and who knows, maybe without the technology of the engines. But Shenlong, that's something we should be watching because uh, who knows? The horrible story is during the holidays, we want to be positive. Who knows what kind of things as we move toward the, you know, the next level of space warfare, which hopefully it doesn't happen. But, well, smarter people than me, that's why we have a space force and we're keeping our eyes flat to the skies. Now, I don't think it's a, a news flash to most of our listeners that China and the United States have pretty sophisticated means of uh, spying on one another. And I think some of that was on mm-hmm. display during the, um, the hubbub, hubbub over that uh, spy balloon that was floating over the yes. United States. But what would, as far as you know, what would the Chinese be able to gain from a space plane that's used for spying as opposed to, I don't know, conventional spying using things like satellites or, or other things? Well, theoretically, I mean, I could guess all night, all morning, but here's some of the things that I find from my own research. How about this? That particular spacecraft platform can literally try to crack the code of the encrypted, which is very difficult to do, but who knows? You know, there's a lot of smart hackers out there, maybe breaking into and hacking into some of our military satellites, which are surveillance mm. satellites, also without, without having to send a balloon over your country, you can do some amazing espionage from space, because remember, these objects are up not just at 50, 60 miles, the beginnings of space. These objects are probably, and I don't know the exact altitude, but this is pretty accurate, I believe. The space station is about an altitude of some 260 to 275 miles above the Earth. That's pretty easy to eavesdrop even from there because some of our most sophisticated electronic satellites, the ones that we put up there, you know, they all have different classifications and code words. They apparently have optical cameras that can go from space and read the print, let's say, on a newspaper or a magazine from orbit. So they could be used for many purposes. It may be easier to do it in space, spying on other aircraft, or me, other spacecraft in orbit. So this is a story that I'm sure hits home to you because of the name of this mm-hmm. phenomenon and the similarity to your name. But I think a lot of folks are familiar with the idea of auroras. Obviously, I'm sure the yes. most famous among them is the aurora borealis. There have been some images over the course of the last few weeks that have been making their way over the Internet and on television. These incredible purple and green lights. They're apparently not auroras, though. It's something called Steve. What is Steve? Absolutely. And how is it different from an aurora? Right. I don't want to take credit for this. It has nothing to do with me other than that's my name. But it's a very strange phenomenon, Frank. We see, as you mentioned before, it may necessarily be a part. It might be very well a part of the auroras themselves. But the name, the acronym stands for this technical term, a technical word, strong thermal emission velocity enhancement. Back in Earth terms, what they think this is, is plasma from the sun, which is hot glowing gas. 60 to really 125 miles up above us in that realm where the, you know, the auroras are seen. But what makes it different, because it magnifies the electrical fields parallel to the Earth's magnetic field. So in other words, this is a lot of protons, kind of even, I guess it's a bad description to say like lighting up a neon tube. That would be really a poor example. It's just this big flow of gas, plasma, which is actually another state of matter, which comes from the energy from the sun, and what makes this so unusual is it was actually discovered by, quote, photographers at night. It wasn't discovered by astronomers. They were out there taking pictures of Aurora. And they said, wow, look at that purple band. What could it be? They presented it to the scientists. 
So the point is, now as we go through the throes of a higher peak of Sunspot Cycle 25, naturally, the higher the latitude you are here in the, in the United States and on the Northern Hemisphere, the chances of seeing the auroras, don't be surprised if not only the beautiful green and red glow of auroras is there, but you see this band arcing across the sky, a big plasma tube. This is, of course, purplish, maybe uh, even, I don't know, even bluish, but it's something that's not necessarily an aurora, but it's linked with plasma and all the energy from the solar cycle. Fascinating stuff. Absolutely. All right, a lot of people eager to chat with you, 800-848-9222. Let me begin with uh, Bill in Huntington. Bill, you're on with Steve Cates. Oh, hello. Good morning. Um, okay, now... In the original Star Trek, they would have this graphic. I think it's Starbase 5. It's a space station. And the Enterprise would orbit it, right? You'd see it you know, come approaching you with a curve. Okay. Mm-hmm. And, of course, I don't think that's possible. But what is the smallest the, the lar- the smallest body that a spacecraft could go into orbit around. It's very interesting, Bill, and good morning and happy holidays. Here we go. This is interesting. The smallest body that I can think of would be some of these small asteroid bodies. And this all goes in kind of a theme here because eventually, as we look for more minerals and resources, you know, we're looking for all these precious minerals and, you know, metals as we put into electric cars. But one of the future, this is way way in the future, the smallest body that you could probably orbit around is a small asteroid. And depending on the size of it, let's go back to a spacecraft mission, Bill, that happened not not too long ago called DART. It was actually this binary asteroid that they sent a spacecraft in with this big kind of like a sledgehammer thing to hit it. So in other words, they really could have gone into orbit around it. And that would be quite interesting. But the reason I mentioned asteroids is something to dock to. That's eventually the path that we're going to have to master when we go ahead and mine asteroids, because if we could, Bill and Frank, that would be an amazing resource. There would probably be the first uh, couple of trillionaires on the Earth if you could harvest that, not only the minerals, the diamonds, and some of the precious metals. So asteroids would be my candidate for the smallest body to orbit and maybe even land on. And one of the things that I've been paying attention to, and I'm sure you, because you follow the news, you have seen this as well. When they talk about kind of the, the year of highlights in 2023, one of the things that uh, mm-hmm. keeps popping up on the news, both local and, and national news, by the way, is the James Webb Space Telescope and the incredible discoveries that this James Webb Telescope has produced, the incredible images that the James Webb Telescope has produced. As the year's coming to an end, what are the key things that we've learned from the James Webb Space Telescope, and what are we likely to learn next year about uh, through the James well, Webb right. Space Telescope? Yeah, absolutely. That's one of the greatest questions of all. And remember, it comes up on its second anniversary, launched a couple of years ago back on Christmas Day, then in French Guiana. But mm. to answer your question, it's going to probably take a couple of shows, but I'll highlight some of the most interesting you know, phenomena and discoveries. How about this? Spotting six impossible galaxies at the dawn of time. So we believe, meaning for the astronomers and astrophysicists and cosmologists, the people that look at the evolution of the universe, how did it start? We find out that after the 13.77 billion year ago expansion, I like to call it an expansion instead mm-hmm. of an explosion because we weren't here. We find out that galactic systems weren't supposed to form until later in time. So the simple answer to this is, which is absolutely mind boggling, is we found some galaxies that had formed just 500 million years after the Big Bang. And why is that so controversial or important is that galactic systems were then to form much later in time, which means that James Webb is peeking into the universe and maybe, as we talk about the next one, of the great discoveries or conundrums, now casting doubt on the whole standard model of cosmology. In other words, what I just mentioned, if the universe is 13.77 billion years old, James Webb is telling us, well, don't be so certain. The whole conversation is not settled yet because it's finding things that we think are very much, how do I say it, in the simplest way. It's so anti what we believe as the standard model of this whole universe, and that's going to have to be explained uh, by scientists. We're also finding the oldest black hole in the universe. They found this twice. So they're looking at something again going back. Black, black holes, how about this, 570 million years after the Big Bang. That's bizarre because, again, 
things in the universe were thought to have formed into a lot later in time. And we're finding out that there's a strangeness when we look out there and seeing objects in pairs. So we're looking at these particular planetary systems. We're seeing doubles. We're seeing objects that we thought were singular, but also have a duality. Like there's two of everything. That's a bizarre thing. And then how about this? This is probably the most critical or important one, if you want to call it, maybe not critical, is the discovery of probably one of the most amazing water planets that's some 120 light years away. It's called K218b, an object about maybe a little larger than Neptune. But in this particular analysis from James Webb, it says, hey, folks, take a good look at this candidate. It's in what they call the Goldilocks zone, I mean, that habitable area where life theoretically could exist (laughs) based on our sun and its temperature. So, wow, imagine 120 light years away, there might be an object that really does have a watery surface. Yeah, that's maybe uh, no land. That's for sure. All right, one eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. A lot of people already eager to queue up for uh, a question for Steve Cates, aka Doctor Sky. If you're interested in what we're talking about, by the way, you can uh, check out the Doctor Sky Experience. It's a terrific podcast. You could search it. By looking at any podcast app, just type the Dr. Sky Experience, hit the subscribe button, and you'll automatically get it downloaded to your phone. Or you can just go to redapplepodcastnetwork.com and search uh, Dr. Sky. It comes right up. Janice is in New Jersey. Hi, Janice. Oh, hello. Good good evening, uh, Frank and Thank Dr. You. Sky. It's such a pleasure to finally call in and speak to you both uh, in the evening, sitting Thank under you. this my beautiful Christmas tree in the twilight night here. Um, I had just on my mind, I had been thinking about, is the world yes. really round? What is your take on that? Yeah. And you what know, proof? Well, Janice, yes, and it's a great question. Absolutely. And I want to probably put this one to rest for people because, and again, a Merry Christmas and a Happy Holidays to you and your family. Here's some evidence that I think really kind of puts that whole subject to rest. If you take a look at a lunar eclipse, and what's that whole dynamic, Janice? That's when, of course, the Earth gets in the way of the light that the moon gets. So, and again, hopefully later, Frank, we can talk about in Janice this beautiful, magnificent full moon that adorns our skies across the listening area. But the simplest answer I can give you is why I believe the Earth really is round. Obviously, people go up in space. Ask anybody who's gone up on a Jeff Bezos you know, flight uh, suborbital, they see the curvature of the Earth. But the absolute proof is when you see an eclipse of the moon, you see the moon move into the shadow of the Earth. And how is that uh, shadow shaped? It's shaped as a curve. So what we're seeing is a projection of the Earth out in space onto the moon. The shadow doesn't look like just a flat line because that would be impossible because it would be so thin we couldn't see it. So you see that curvature as the moon moves deep into the Earth's shadow. That's my evidence. And ask anybody, like I said, not to be repetitive, when you go up into space suborbital, you start to see the Earth is round. Thank you, Janice. And for what it's worth, I uh, did ask William Shatner about this, both privately and publicly, when he and I did a series of uh, of Q&As uh, together about a year ago. And uh, he promised Wonderful. me that the that the world was round, and I can't imagine that Shatner would lie to me. So about that, anyway. Absolutely not. Uh, we're going to go. we're going to continue our cosmic conversations with Doctor Sky straight ahead. The other side of midnight with Frank Morano. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. 
It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. The other side of midnight presents from the spiral to the elliptical to the lenticular to the irregular to the quasars galaxies. Where are we in the cosmic evolutionary picture? Always remember. To keep your eyes to the skies. The following conversations are cosmic conversations with Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky. Oh, yes. 26 minutes after the hour. Just because we are heading towards the end of 2023, that doesn't mean we're not still interested in talking about the future, namely the future of space travel, understanding uh, some of the majestic things that we see in the night sky and uh, really getting excited about the future of space travel. A lot of folks are saying that the time that we're in right now, presently, is the most exciting and most promising in terms of space travel since the late 1960s. And I tend to think that that's true. And our Sherpa, through uh, exploring those cosmic conversations and those cosmic topics, is uh, Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky. If you're new to the program, if you're just uh, listening today for the first time, Dr. Sky is a great guy that we're privileged to be joined by every two weeks. He's a veteran radio and TV broadcaster and an edutainer with a great deal of expertise in astronomy and in space. He's also a terrific podcaster with the Dr. Sky Experience. Steve, um, you mentioned the full moon. Uh, what other live sky events can people look forward to seeing imminently? Well, Frank, there's a small meteor shower. It always ends the year off called the Ursids. Now, because of the light of the full moon, this may not be something that many city dwellers or even people in rural areas might get to see. Why do I mention it? Because it's on the calendar as if we were serving in the gastronomical world, you know, the greatest of food creations. So we talk about what's available on the menu. So we look to the northern sky near the North Star, and this little meteor shower continues. So if you look to the north and you happen to bear the cold, and you know, you can go out and take a look, come back in and go back out. If you see any, all of these meteors brought to us by different comets out of the exhaust tail pipe, as we call it, of comets comes these great meteors. But, Frank, more to the point right now, this most magnificent moon that we're seeing right now is so important. The last one, of course, of 2023. But we actually find out that this moon was actually full on the 26th at 7.33 p.m. Eastern Standard Time for precision. But what makes this moon so beautiful at this point in time? It rides highest along the zodiac path. So six months from now, obviously, we'll be seeing the sun in the same part of the sky and for those of us that don't like the heat, particularly here in Phoenix, when it was over 110 for 57 days, that is degrees, this particular moon that you see now is simply called the long night or cold moon. But even more interesting, the Greeks actually came up with an understanding that it's called a metonic cycle. So every 19 years or so, and we could go into specifics, but simply 19 years or so, we find out that lunar phases repeat courtesy of this metonic cycle. So what does that mean to all of us? The last time we had a full moon around the Christmas date was 1977 and 2015. So if you miss this one, you'll have to wait till 2034. So it's kind of fascinating because when we look at this, Native American tribes were the ones that gave these names. So let's take a few, for example, the Great Mohican Nation. They called it the Long Night Moon, as we mentioned before, to the Cherokee Nation, the Snow Moon, and to the Ogallala tribe, the moon of the popping trees. And this makes the moon fascinating, right? Because next year, we're going to be serving as people always ask, what do we see in 2024? Well, how about five eclipses, two solar, three lunar, and hopefully in future shows, we can go through the exact iteration of how these are going to take place. But none is better, folks, than the April 8th event, Frank. You know, people in New York State don't have to drive that far. People along the East Coast will drive maybe a few hours to get to see totality. And, of course, we'll be talking about that one, I'm sure, as we hope to go to Texas, where the weather conditions are supposed to be the best. So that moon tonight, absolutely spectacular. Love it. I love it. I'm going to uh, be sure to get a look at it. It's still going to be dark when I leave the airwaves. I'm going to be sure to uh, take a look with my binoculars afterwards. Joe is in the Queens. Hello, Joe. Yes, yeah, Steve. Happy New Year. Merry Christmas. Uh, 
I have three things I want to bring up, actually, uh, briefly. Okay. Uh, you mentioned Neptune uh, previously. Uh, there's a report of uh, a thousand mile winds on the surface of Neptune, and the original discovery of Neptune was uh, through geometry. They kind of speculated mm-hmm. based on geometric yes. forces that there was Neptune, and then subsequently cited it. And that's all I'll ask you about that. And then two questions on the earth. One is, uh, in the realm of sports cars, I don't know about the engineering, but, you know, uh, supposedly mm-hmm. there's some sports cars that are priced at 3 to $18 million. I'm wondering if there's, like, space technology on these sports cars, and I don't know where people could drive them fast unless it's like the Audubon uh, in uh, Germany or something like that. And also... Uh, mm-hmm. How would you profile the people that do the polar bear thing on Coney Island? Would they be good candidates for astronauts? Uh, (laughs) Joe, I love you, man. Let me say this. I watched that for years when I lived in the New York, New Jersey area. I think they'd be definitely candidates for the the mission to Neptune, since you're talking about Neptune, with the coldest of temperatures out there. As far as your car concerned, I don't know that much about the vehicle assembly, but I don't think there's anything other than earth materials in some of those very high-priced cars. And, Joe, just to let you know, we have the biggest car celebration auction, the Barrett-Jackson auction, out here every year. So, folks, if you're a big car fan, that's one on your list out here in Scottsdale. But let me go to the art and the, the, the point of what you were talking about here with Neptune. Neptune has a great storm like Saturn has a great storm and so does, of course, Jupiter, the great red spot. It has the great eye of Merlin, and it's caused by instability. There's weather systems on Neptune. How could there be weather systems on a thing that's almost 300 below zero? But let me mention something that you brought up. Neptune's discovery was not by geometry. It was by simple calculations in math, but this is bizarre, Frank. I, I, I never could figure this out. On September 23, 1846, astronomers pointed a telescope to an area where mathematicians said it should be, and lo and behold, it was right within the telescope field. Not exactly. That's something, Joe, that's totally amazing because that was a planet that was actually discovered mathematically before it was ever discovered visually. And I've observed Neptune, and I'll be darned. I'm always honest with the audience and always will be. That was a heck of a hard thing to mm. find in the telescope, a little tiny blue dot. So, Joe, great questions. I think you had like five or six of them in there. But uh, I don't know. Those people that jump into the uh, polar bear thing, they're definitely candidates for the missions out to deep, dark space. Yeah, either that or uh, a candidate for the psych ward, one of the two. Hey, uh, Steve, um, you've never done that, by the way, I imagine, the polar bear plunge. No, I've watched it from afar, and I was actually getting cold watching the polar bear. So, <laughs> <there you go. laughs> uh, uh, hey, see, he mentioned Neptune. Uh, let me ask you about what's going on with Saturn. Uh, there was some news that one of the moons on Saturn or orbiting Saturn may harbor ingredients for life. What moon is this? What do we know about this? Well, the moon is known as Enceladus, and it was discovered by an astronomer who actually discovered the planet Uranus. It was William Herschel. He discovered Uranus March the 13th, 1781. But this object that he found around Saturn, it's amazing he found it. It was in 1789. And, Frank, they had a telescope. He had the largest telescope in the world in 1789. How big was it? It had a mirror 47 inches in diameter. And to anybody not familiar with telescopes, your garden variety telescope may have a 6- or 8-inch mirror. That's incredible for the time. But here's what they find. Enceladus is this blue planetary object that looks like it's coated with blue ice. And it's named after the Greek giants. And this one, Saturn meaning Cronus, he was the head of a group of, you know, of, of these amazing large figures called Titans. So that's where we get the name Enceladus from. But what's interesting about this? Can you imagine even Voyager, the spacecraft, imaged this? We have geyser kind of volcanoes shooting ice out maybe 50 miles up above the surface of Enceladus. We believe there's an ocean underneath there. And there's a compound, a molecular compound called hydrogen cyanide. It's harmful to humans, but it's also an ingredient to life. Other material that they may find there, or at least think that exists, is ethane, methanol, and how about salt water? But even more fascinating, Frank, the source of the E-ring of Saturn is from all that material that's shooting out of Enceladus. So as the ring system of Saturn, you go out 
and see that beautiful, amazing geometry. This ring system that's called the E-ring way out there beyond the regular rings is caused by material constantly coming over millions of years off the surface. So that in Europa of Jupiter and Titan might be places to look for the three, four letters, L-I-F-E, and good luck to that. Wow, that's wild. 800-848-9222. Rick is on Long Island. Hi, Rick. Gentlemen, it's a pleasure to speak to you. Dr. Sky, oh, my God, man. I love your show, man. I'm going to do this quick. Well, thank you so um, much. I have two quick questions. One, the Big Bang. Was there anything there before the Big Bang that it blew up into that maybe destroyed a, another universe that was there first? And... We're My second question done. is, if you, if you ever have the ability to reach anything close to light speed in space travel, okay, how is it possible to travel such a distance uh, without hitting anything? And exactly. Those are my questions. Because you're right. No, thank you, and happy holidays. You know, going to your questions here, this is so fascinating. The Big Bang, we don't know where the heck it came from, but if you had asked the likes of Stephen Hawking, since he's not around anymore— he believed that there was something before the Big Bang. And that makes sense to quantum physics. So simply, the best answer I can give you, always honest, is that this particular universe may have been a series of like sausages on a string. So in other words, just take like sausages all attached. One universe came from another. And then independently, there may be other universes popping in and out of there. So that's quite fascinating itself. But as you look at the speed of light, <clears throat> here's something really bizarre. If you ask anybody, and you have a cup of coffee, wherever you get it, just turn around and ask somebody. And, of course, they'll look at you like we're weird. What's the speed of light in miles per hour? You have to go 670 million miles an hour, gentlemen, to go to the speed of light. So how would we be able to not hit anything if we could even get those speeds? The latest thing in quantum physics, and we never really give homework right here, Frank, on Cosmic Conversations. But people should look up, and Bill, look up the term, and Rick, excuse me, look up the term, quantum entanglement. We're finding simply something in quantum physics that says if in one side of the galaxy, let's say 100,000 light years or more, that if you turn the light switch on, it would instantaneously go on the other side of the universe instantaneously. Hmm. But that doesn't answer the question that you're really asking, Rick. How would we not hit anything? Well, that's why the Star Trek episodes look so smooth when they go to warp speed. That's a good question. How come they don't hit anything? But they probably would, and that's one of the conundrums, going even at space speeds now. We have no way of deflecting objects if we're going at such incredible velocities. But look up quantum entanglement, Rick. That's an interesting one. It'll probably confuse us more than I just did, but I tried my best. Thanks, Rick. Uh, thank you, Steve. Well done. Hey, um, one of the things we're seeing is that the Air Force is to is mm -hmm. building a base or rebuilding a base in the Pacific. I believe the island uh, that it's going to be on is called Tinian Island. What's the big deal about this, Steve? What do we know about this? Well, this goes back to history, because I was very close to a gentleman named Morris Jepson. Who was he? He was one of the armorers on board the Enola Gay, which Colonel Tibbetts and the crew flew, of course, the first atomic bomb over to Hiroshima. And we do know that this base was also the successful launch pad for the B-29 that successfully did the next of, this, of the two atomic bombs on Japan. People may not know this, but it's only 39 square miles, and it's 3,700 miles west of Hawaii. Think of how far that is. That's almost like crossing the United States again and some miles. It was abandoned back in 1946, and it's interesting because they had to build, the Navy Seabees had to build a dock for a warship that has such a sad story. I remember interviewing some people from the USS Indianapolis. It carried the nuclear core from California, raced to Tinian, got it there. So we're looking to rebuild that base. But if you look at it strategically, Frank, it's in a location now that the world is getting, you know, a little more tense in that area with China's aggressiveness into the South China Sea. We need a base over there. They know that Guam is not the only place that we should station our military. God forbid we have to go to war. Let's say defend Taiwan. But they're going to be spending initially some $100 million to redo this as another one of America's bases. But it has, excuse me, such an interesting story so that when the B-29 flew from Tinian, the first one with Colonel Tibbetts, can you imagine that? It was still a 1,570-mile journey just to take off. And our good friend, Morris Jepson, who's passed on, his job was sitting in the back or in the middle part of the plane to then slowly arm the bomb 
they had no idea that it wouldn't self-detonate maybe in the air. Can you imagine the stress on all those people in that time? But Tinian hopefully will come back like the phoenix that rises from the ashes. Mm. 800-848-9222. Al is in New York City. Hi, Al. Yeah. Hi, Dr. Sky. It's Good morning. To hear you. Yes, sir. Good morning. Thank you, sir. I've got a question. You once postulated that the star Beetlejuice might go nova, and I'm mm-hmm. curious. Are you familiar with this term, Tycho's star? Say that again. I, I missed you. I didn't hear you. I'm sorry. Tycho, T-Y-C-O, Tycho's star. Yes, absolutely. I didn't know that. Well, the Tycho star was one of the supernovas that was, yes, no, the time was interesting. November 11th. I'm sorry, sir? Will that rival the brightness of, of Beetlejuice, or which would be the greater? I think Beetlejuice brightness. would be brighter, but let me explain what you're talking about, Al. This is interesting. November the 11th of 1572, this is an exact date, a star blew up in the constellation Cassiopeia. It was witnessed by the great astronomer at the time, Ica, the namesake. It shone in the sky for months, and it was allegedly, I mean, this is what they write in books. They didn't have any you know, computers, of course. But they say that that star shone at about as brilliant as the planet Venus, and it was visible in the daytime. But after the Tycho Nova, the supernova that it is, that was closer in our galaxy. This Betelgeuse event probably would be a lot brighter. And here's what they say. At 500 light years away, now, that star, once it goes supernova and collapses, would be about as bright as a half moon in the sky for at least four, maybe to six months in the sky. So that would be a real big changer in the heavens, much, much brighter than the Tycho supernova of November 11, 1572. It's only a matter of time. It may have already happened, and it's headed this way. Well, it may take thousands of years. We don't know, but I guarantee you one thing. You'll hear it on Cosmic Conversations, right, Frank? Well, uh, it does happen. You better believe it. We're going to continue these Cosmic Conversations in a moment. My guest for the hour is uh, Dr. Sky. If you uh, have any questions for him, we'll try and get in as many as we can in the next uh, 14 minutes. 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. We'll continue our Cosmic Conversations straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. Side at Midnight with Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. You're listening to Cosmic Conversations with uh, Dr. Sky. His uh, name in some circles is also Steve Cates, but whatever you call him, the fact of the matter is the man not only has the best voice in all of radio, but he is really incredibly knowledgeable when it comes to all of this stuff. Steve, I mentioned that a lot of folks are saying this is one of the most exciting times for space exploration, space travel, space technology. What's on the horizon for next year in terms of any of those categories? What should people be excited about other than the um, the eclipse, obviously, that you mentioned, and some other things that involve stargazing? Anything uh, with the um, with the Blue Origin uh, or uh, SpaceX or uh, Virgin, you know, Virgin Galactic? 
battles in terms of space exploration? Well, actually, Frank, it's interesting. Let's go back to this year as we wrap it up. There's some 217 space launches for all of 2023. That's a lot of space stuff. Mm. Of those 217, 205 were successful. Some have obviously didn't get off the launch pad. But SpaceX, they now move forward, had 87, at least to this date. They may have one this morning, and we'll add another one. China had 54 successful space launches. But for the future, I think the big focus is going to be on the you know next iteration of Starship, which SpaceX has obviously gone. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they call every time they launch that big rocket a success, even if it gets you know intentionally blown up above the near space area. But you're going to see a lot of changes. The whole consumer side of the space tourism industry is in full force. I think you're going to see another field open up. So if any of the young listeners out there or anybody of any age wants to get into a career path, Frank, it might be space law that really turns out to uh, bring us some great uh, you know, people in the legal profession, because we're going to have to answer so many questions about that. And then once we return to the moon, we're going to have to have all kinds of laws that set up you know, right. how we colonize. Who knows? Maybe there'll be HOAs on the moon, too. <laughs> it's an exciting, an exciting year. We wait and watch. Absolutely. <laughs> Mike is in Queens. Mike, what's your question for Dr. Sky? Gentlemen, great show. Uh, listen, is there any uh, research as to the possibility of being able to colonize an asteroid so we could uh, slingshot yeah. into space? Uh, and, uh, you know, save gas, for lack of a better way of saying it. And also, ditto that for any rogue planet. Would we be able to uh, somehow hollow out a rogue planet and uh, turn it into a, uh, a starship? And uh, obviously, I'll take my answer off the air, because mm-hmm. I, I don't even know where to go with that. No, no, I mean, Mike, curious. Merry Christmas, yeah. Happy New Year. God bless you. Happy, Great questions happy, here from happy, this audience, happy everything Mike. to everyone, yes. Go Absolutely. ahead, sir. Yes, I'm sorry. <laughs> Absolutely. I love that. That includes everything. So there you go, Mike. The difficulty is, first, we need to learn how to mine asteroids, because if then we can land and have a base on there, we'll be able to have some sort of a factory. Sounds sci-fi-like. But as far as other planetary objects out there, that's a long in the distant future. I mean, you look at people like uh, Elon Musk and Bezos, they both believe that, and it's so funny, Frank, I think you heard this, and Mike may have heard it, that what did Bezos say? He said that eventually we're going to be out into the universe, meaning the solar system, and we're going to come back to the Earth for vacations. But really, truly, folks, and not to be negative, it seems like that's obviously a long way. We have so many things to do. But I think the first goal would be to be able to mine an asteroid. And how about this? I think we'd all agree. Let's find a way to deflect asteroids so Mother Earth doesn't get hit by these rogue objects that come. That's a big challenge. And not to knock the people that are working on climate change, but I would think this way. The asteroid deflection thing should be a world agreeable kind of program. Don't you think, Frank? We should all be figuring a global. Oh, yeah. How do we prevent us from getting whacked by the big billiard ball from space that might upset the entire game on the billiard ball table, meaning the, you know, the destruction of our planet, which has happened in the past. No no question about that. Hey, uh, Steve, a caller called in about this on Friday, and I said I would ask you about it. Uh, basically, this person said said that um, she's noticed that clouds look different now than they did when she was a child. Uh, basically, she seemed to allude to the fact that there were darker spots within clouds that she's never noticed before. And I, I, my my thinking was that she was claiming she didn't say this, but the I thought the implication was that it might have something to do with chemtrails or something that's being done by someone to uh, mess around with the clouds at all. She asked me to ask you about it. And, you know, look, I'm sure if mm-hmm. she had a question about it, a lot of uh, a lot of people may have a question about it. So my question, I guess, in a nutshell is, have you noticed anything different about the clouds these days as opposed to decades ago? Well, I have. I mean, I grew up watching this like a lot of people, and we all know the difference between a dark rain cloud, a little puffy cotton ball type clouds. But yes, I've seen some differences in the clouds. And I think not to jump on just climate change or, you know, chemtrail concepts. I mean, both of them have further research to do, and I'll be neutral on that, but I'd always be up front. So I think this way, I've seen some cloud systems that are different. I'm seeing more high-altitude clouds around the Earth. And here's one that people are seeing. If you go to this website called spaceweather.com, the big story of the week is people seeing these polar, get a look at this, polar stratospheric clouds. Now, what the heck is that? 
Those are clouds, Frank, that are extremely high in the Earth's atmosphere that are super cold, and they look like mother of pearl, a beautiful color. But here's what's happening. To answer the question about changes in clouds, we've never really seen them at lower latitudes. So we're seeing them at much lower latitudes, like people in Canada were seeing them when you only saw them up in Greenland or near the North Pole, and actually in lower latitudes, even down to Europe. So that's a strange thing. Why is it happening? Nobody really knows. And again, we say this with confidence, all weather comes from the sun, and all iterations of that are definitely, if you back up, if you were doing like chain of custody in a crime scene, we're going to go backwards with all the evidence we have to find out what was the source of all this problem or the causation. So it goes back to the thing that the sun generates all weather, and you bet there's lots of changes on the sun. We simply don't, do not accept right now, space scientists do not accept that it's just a simple 11 or 12-year solar cycle. There are more cycles that even could be a 300 or more year solar cycle. So, yeah, I've seen some different clouds, and certainly many people Interesting. Are. Interesting. Thank you for that. 800-848-9222. Charlie is in Kings County. Hello, Charlie. Hello. Could you – a really interesting show. Could you comment on the fact that because – there's no gravity in space, that astronauts have limited time in terms of how long they could stay up there. And once they, if they colonize the moon, will there be enough gravity from the moon to prevent loss of bone density and muscle mass? Very good questions, Charlie. And good morning and happy holidays. Here we go. If you look in space, long duration missions in space Astronauts have, I'm from the medical side, I'm not a medical doctor, they know that the causation between, you know, cosmic rays and radiation have bad effects on the body. As far as weightlessness in space, we found out that astronauts who come back from these long-duration missions up on the space station, bone density changes, and it goes down. But on the lunar surface, there is a gravity, and the simple calculation, everybody can do it, you know, in two seconds on their smartphone or mentally, is that you weigh one-sixth the weight of what you weigh here on the Earth. So the astronauts that went to the moon, they were, Charlie, carrying backpacks that all their gear would have weighed about 300 pounds on the Earth. But the math that we do of their weight in the spacesuits, they were only one-sixth the weight, so they could move around. So every object in space would have gravity, excuse me, every planetary object or surface, but in space, the long-duration missions. That's why a lot of spacecraft in the future will create, you've seen these sci-fi movies where they show these rotating like cartwheels in the space stations where they turn, they're creating an artificial gravity. That's kind of cool. And that's in the near future, I would hope. That is uh, uh, that is pretty exciting. 800-848-9222. Um, give us an update, if you would, Steve, on Artemis. This is obviously the attempt to go back to the moon, which we haven't been to in about 50 years. Um, and now, apparently, the United States has announced a plan to land an international astronaut on the moon. Do we know mm-hmm. what the timetable is like for this, Steve? Well, if we move forward, let's go back in time to where we have to come to the next Artemis mission. That'll be Artemis II. We'll have a Canadian astronaut on board. That's November, we hope, of 2024. But to answer the question, the Canadian astronaut is Jeremy Hansen. But what we're looking for for Artemis III, and I think this is a little optimistic. I always want to be honest here because, you know, if they rush this, you know, it's great to say by the date, meaning the end of 2025, I'm going to be a betting person at the betting table here and say this is probably going to be sometime toward 2029 or even 2030. Now, many people may take exception to what I'm saying and say, oh, they can do it. The reason that I'm saying this is it's not so much selecting the right crew. We have to find the viable way to get these astronauts to the surface of the moon because, remember, SpaceX, Bezos is working on a lunar lander. SpaceX is doing one. He has to get Starship to work properly. The problematic thing is they really need to build the Gateway Space Station. What's that? That's an orbiting space station around the moon so that if anything goes wrong, we don't have a repeat of an Apollo 13. Bless those astronauts, as in what they went through. So I'm just saying, to be very upfront here, and that's, I think, the only way to be, it's probably a longer period of time than the rush date at the end of 2025. And if they do it, then I'm wrong. But hopefully that proves the technology was there and the capability was. But they really need to build that gateway as a way station so that they could Hmm. use that for 
resupply, refueling, and getting astronauts. But let's say somebody's ill. You know, where are you going to put them? you got to send them up to the space right. station to right. get them medical attention. Uh, let me try and squeeze in as many calls as we can here in the next two minutes. Frank sure. is on uh, Staten Island. Hi, Frank. How you doing, Dr. Sky? I'd like to ask you a question about... I'd like to ask you a question about... Can you see the International Space Station during the day in a real clear, clear, Good super question. blue sky? Mm-hmm. Good I noticed question. one the time. Is probably. Yeah. Okay. Years ago, about forty-five years ago, I was looking up in the sky in Central Park I was with my wife, and I'm looking up and I see this little silver thing flying by. It was way out there. And I says, "That is that like look like a balloon or something?" But then I saw mm-hmm. something coming up behind it, and I'm like, "Oh my God!" Mm-hmm. And I heard that day that. It was getting, you know, uh, another rocket was coming up to it to uh, resupply. And I'm like, oh, my God, this is, yes. this is amazing. And that's, and, and I was like, could it be? And I never got an answer. Yeah. I says, possible, huh? It's possible. No, it's possible because, let me say this, I've watched this in a pair of binoculars. I mean, that's cheating in so many people's way. But with the naked eye, like you're talking about, yes, you can. And how about this? The space station actually goes in front of the sun. And there's people out there that can calculate that, and they have an image from a solar telescope where you see the space station go right across the front of the sun. But let's remember this, Frank. The space station, the biggest object we've made in space, is pretty darn bright. Best times to see it always are just hours, a few hours after sunrise or sunset, or before sunrise, I should say, and just after sunset. That's an amazing object to see. Hey, uh, Frank, thank you. Steve, we're going to have to end it there. The hour always flies by whenever we're together. Uh, I will see you in 2024, my friend. Thanks for everything. Thanks for your service to our show this past year. Always love it. Happy New Year to everyone. Thank you for having me. If you want to hear more of uh, Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky, just search the Dr. Sky Experience on any podcast app. Not only a lot of the subjects we touched upon today in this hour, but a lot of other stories not related to space. Meantime, keep asking questions. Tax day is coming. Oh, no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash Boost by Tax Day to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC.